It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey now. I was on Martha McCallum's show yesterday talking about the New York Times editor's note about the hospital strike in Gaza. I'm not going to belabor it here because faithful listeners heard me talk about this yesterday. But while I was there, I was doing a news report and I had a sort of an out-of-control teleprompter, uh, which caused me to pause a couple of times, but we got through it just fine. Uh, sometimes teleprompters don't do what you ask them to do. And I have a column about this today, and here's one of the takeaways. Remember, the Times said it relied too heavily on Hamas, and the Times editors were not careful enough on this very sensitive subject, which had real-world consequences. What I say now is I find it inexplicable that some Western news organizations are still casting this tragic explosion at the Gaza City Hospital as a dispute. One side says this, the other side says that. Well, one side is a terrorist group. But beyond that, I think the evidence of an errant Islamic jihad rocket falling into the lounge area there is overwhelming. It's definitive. So what's the latest? Let's get into story number one. Israeli military saying today, that it had struck more than 400 targets in Gaza. And that follows uh, the day before when 320 airstrikes were carried out. And this, uh, I love this line. I love it so much from the Times news story showing it's learned its lesson. The Gaza Health Ministry, comma, which is controlled by the armed group Hamas, said at least 28 people were killed and dozens Injured, dozens injured. Um, Look, I don't want to be callous or insensitive to the idea of ordinary Palestinians in Gaza dying as sort of collateral damage from these airstrikes. I don't, uh, I don't really have any sympathy for Hamas operatives and officials, because they started this war with atrocities that you're well aware of, and which I I can't help it. I think about it every day when I tackle this subject. Um, in the meantime, Israel's top commander said the military was well prepared for a ground assault, but where is the ground assault? It's been two weeks now. Um, it remains unclear says the Times, when and if such an invasion will occur. American officials have said Israel's military is not yet ready to launch a ground invasion with a plan that can work. But by the way, both sides are saying, you know, for optical reasons, the U.S. is not telling the Netanyahu government what to do. In other words, the spin is, they both agree that Israel isn't ready for a ground invasion. Biden administration also urging Israel to delay any invasion to allow, at least in part, to allow for more time for hostage negotiations. Well, here's an interesting uh, sidebar. What lies ahead is a kind of sustained urban warfare 
in pursuit of a political end that remains unclear, aside from vanquishing Hamas. I'm starting to sort of sniff the idea that this ground invasion may never happen. I, I say this just on the basis of reading the tea leaves, but what the Times asks is, let's say Israel goes in there and completely dismantles um, the Hamas regime, the Hamas terrorist organization, at a bloody cost to both sides. Once in, how does Israel get out? Once it's dismantled Hamas, if it can, to whom will it hand the keys? If Hamas no longer governs Gaza, who will? And here's a provocative quote from the uh, director of the Middle East for International Institute for Strategic Studies. It's a long name. No matter how successful the operation proves in defeating Hamas as a military organization, Hamas's political imperative and the population's support for the resistance will continue. Israel either reoccupies Gaza, it occupied it until voluntary withdrawal back in 2005, to control it, or by withdrawing after an offensive, seize ground to people for whom the resistance is existence. That's sort of at odds with the Biden view that Hamas doesn't represent Palestinian people. It certainly may not represent some of them. But the weakness of the Israeli strategy in this piece is that Hamas represents a political and religious idea that cannot be dismantled. And it's thrived on its reputation among Palestinians for embracing armed struggle and martyrdom against Israel. All right, yesterday at the briefing, uh, White House briefing, Corinne Jean-Pierre kind of stepped in it. She was asked a question. And here's the question. What about the president's level of concern right now about a potential rise in anti-Semitism? So Corrine said, well, there's no credible specific threat, meaning, I guess, here in the U.S. And then she pivoted to talking about Islamophobia, saying Muslims and those perceived to be Muslim have endured a disproportionate number of hate-fueled attacks. So she is just getting hammered by just about everybody for responding to a question about anti-Semitism by talking about Islamophobia. And here's a statistic. Muslims, who make up 1% of the U.S. population, were victims of about 10% of anti-religious hate crimes in 2021, that's according to the FBI. Jews, who are about 2% of the population, are victims of 51% of such crimes, and there's clearly been a surge. Uh, there's just no question about it. In fairness, she has talked from the podium before about the scourge of anti-Semitism, and so has President Biden. But there's a bit of a, a balancing act going on here. If she had responded to the question, if Karine Jean-Pierre had responded to the question by saying, yes, the president's very concerned about anti-Semitism and here's why, but at the same time, you know, a rise in hate-fueled crimes against Muslims, that would have been the perfect answer. But she only sort of gave half the answer. Uh, circling back to the hostages, Hamas re released two more yesterday, uh, a 79-year-old woman and an 
your old grandmother. There have been hints that they are not in good health. I said it was for humanitarian reasons, right? Well, if you're going to be so humanitarian, how about releasing the other 220 uh, Israeli, American, and hostages from other countries as well? Because you're keeping them as a bargaining chip. And by releasing a couple at a time, it doesn't burnish your image as caring about human life. It absolutely, positively does not. You know, we there's so many other atrocities committed by Haras, you know, killing children and babies, but taking civilians hostage, that is not what civilized nations do. Now, if you want to capture soldiers, Israeli soldiers, that, that's POW. That's according to the rule, rules of war. But taking families and children and an 85-year-old woman, think about the barbarism involved in that. Like we tend to say, oh yeah, they got a bunch of hostages. This is sick. And if they release them at the current rate, and who knows how many more they will release, uh, it's going to take a very long time. And it does put both Bibi Netanyahu and Joe Biden in a very tough dilemma. What if Israel's bombing kills some of the hostages? Um, Could a rescue attempt work? Well, they're probably being kept in these underground tunnels or other heavily guarded areas. And, you know, my heart just bleeds for the families who don't know what will be the fate of their loved ones because they have been captured and held hostage by Hamas. But I just wanted to dwell on that for a moment. I mean, it's a good news story. Obviously, we all cover it. When uh, the first round was Americans coming home, the second, the second release is Israelis. But it is just savagery. I mean, there's no other way to put it. And they released a video of a 21-year-old woman. I mean, just milking this for all it's worth. And yet the left in this country, some members of which, and many students on college campuses, are cheering the Palestinian side, despite all of the uh, just inhumane and unspeakable war crimes that it's carried out. Now, you know, I've criticized Israel for excessive force before, and I'm sure I'll do it again. And we'll see what happens as it intensifies these airstrikes and perhaps launches a ground invasion. But at least Israel tries to avoid civilian casualties. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Story number two. A few weeks ago on this podcast, and I wrote a column about this as well, I said that the media, although they would love to have a heated primary race on the Republican side were essentially declaring the race over. And it was usually couched in terms of Donald Trump. Donald Trump has a 50-point lead in the national polls. Donald Trump has a 20 or 30 or 35-point lead in Iowa or South Carolina. And it's not that I disagree with this. 
I've never seen such an overwhelming lead by somebody who's not an incumbent. But, you know, Trump is kind of a semi-incumbent in that he is a former president trying to pull off what Teddy Roosevelt could not. And, you know, every time he gets indicted, his numbers go up because of the conviction of his MAGA followers that all of these charges are bogus, they're Democrats out to get Trump, he's being persecuted, and he makes this point repeatedly. And even the other day in saying, oh, Sidney Powell was never really my lawyer. Actually, that's not such a smart tack because then she can't invoke attorney-client privilege, but in any event. When he said, talking about that she, like many others, realized the election was rigged. When he talked about the Middle East, this wouldn't have happened to Israel if the election hadn't been rigged and stolen. So now, you know, I mean, it's not going to stop journalists from going out to Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina Although if Trump doesn't either get knocked off in one of those states or one of the other contenders coming close, well, then it probably will be over. Again, I'm not disagreeing with that. But now there's a new way to declare the Republican presidential primary over. Instead of doing it in terms of Donald Trump, you do it in terms of his rivals. So just in the last couple of days, whole series of stories about how nobody's going anywhere. Let's start with Politico. Tim Scott's old friend and former colleague in the Senate, Cory Gardner, kept pleading with him to get on TV more. It was one thing Gardner told Scott in multiple recent conversations to appear regularly on Fox News, according to two people with knowledge of the talks, but a wider audience would form high opinions of Scott, Gardner suggested, if they actually saw and heard him or from him as a presidential candidate. So over the last two weeks, Tim Scott's done that, appearing eight times on CNN, CBS, ABC, and CNBC after a summer engaging almost exclusively with the conservative press. The shakeup may have come too late to energize Scott's faltering campaign. After months of staying out of the conversation, the South Carolina senator is now sputtering below 2% in national polls. On Saturday, Scott's hometown newspaper called for the GOP field to coalesce not around Tim Scott, but around fellow South Carolinian Nikki Haley to take on Donald Trump. Even some prominent Scott fans are beginning to acknowledge that his presidential campaign has been a disappointment. Uh, here's a quote from Mark Sanford, former South Carolina governor and congressman. In talking to the people here at home, what they have told me is that it's unfortunate that the Tim they know in South Carolina is not the Tim that people may be perceiving in Iowa, New Hampshire, and other states. Senator John Cornyn, 
praised his colleague as a spokesman for the Reagan hopeful, optimistic message, but conceded it hasn't seemed to convince the party's voters. I'm disappointed, says Cornyn, because he's such a terrific guy and has got a great message. Asked if Scott can stay in the race until Iowa. Cornyn said at some point, it's going to have to be a consolidation when the outcome is inevitable. And then it says, the piece says, it wasn't so long ago that expectations for Scott ran sky high. Well, I disagree with that. And I like Tim Scott a lot. And he has a terrific life story. And he has uh, a great way of telling it. He's a charismatic guy. But he kind of didn't really take anybody on, except for one instance, in either of the two debates. And, you know, Republican Party, mostly white party, I I don't think expectations were that high. I think some of the pundits would like to see Tim Scott as the GOP nominee. But I always sensed that, you know, he wasn't going to throw enough punches. And that's what it takes. You know, don't blame me. That's the system. That's how you make news. That's how you get yourself into the national conversation. And so it's not a surprise to me that he's not doing well. And there's one instance of one of the contenders pretty much being written off. And to Politico's credit, they've got a couple people on the record. All right. Story three, New York Times. This was titled something like How Ron DeSantis Lost the Internet. But what it really is, is the DeSantis political obituary framed in a little different shape. In early May, as Ron DeSantis prepared to run for president, about a dozen right-wing social media influencers gathered at his pollster's home for cocktails and a poolside buffet. But DeSantis' team wanted to turn them into a battalion of on-message surrogates who could tangle with Trump and his supporters online. For some, the gathering had the opposite effect, according to three attendees. DeSantis' advisors were defensive when asked about campaign strategy and struggled to come up with talking points beyond the vague notion of freedom. Some of the guests at the meeting left doubtful that the DeSantis camp knew what it was in for. His hyper-online strategy, yes, beginning with that, uh, how would I put it, complete and total flop of a Twitter launch, because people couldn't see it, um, quickly became a glaring weakness with a series of gaffes, unforced errors, and blown opportunities compared to former, uh, excuse me, according to former staff members, influencers, and right-wing commentators. So the, the Times is really just pounding the governor on this. Even after a recent concerted effort to reboot, the campaign has had trouble shaking off a reputation for being thin-skinned and mean-spirited online, repeating ins- repeatedly insulting Trump supporters and alienating potential allies. Some of its most visible efforts, including videos employing a Nazi symbol and homo erotic images have turned off donors and drawed much needing attention from the candidate. These missteps are hardly the only source of trouble for DeSantis, 
who was polling in a distant second place. The campaign has often failed to land meaningful blows on Trump, who somehow only gains more support when under fire. But they've become textbook cases of the power of online buzz. DeSantis's bid now highlights a different lesson for future contenders. Losing the virtual race can drag down an, an in-real-life campaign. Here's Republican strategist Rob Stutzman. The strategy was to be a newer, better version of the culture warrior. But they did it to the exclusion of a lot of the traditional campaign messaging. So, now here's the uh, response. Santa's campaign disputed that it was hurt by its online strategy, said it would not relitigate old stories. Our campaign is firing all cylinders, spokesman said. The former campaign manager, she lost that job in one of those shakeups, Janera Peck exercised little oversight of the campaign's online operations, which were anchored by a team known as the War Room, consisting of high-energy young staffers, many just out of college, who spent their days scanning the internet for noteworthy storylines, composing posts, and dreaming up memes and videos they hoped would go viral. At the helm was Christina Pushaw, the Rapid Response Director, became known for her scorched earth strategy when it came to critics and the press. She's the governor's uh, previous uh, press secretary. She would often post screenshots of their questions, questions from mainstream news outlets, rather than responding to them, and once told followers to drag, meaning, you know, publicly shame, an AP reporter, which got her temporarily banned from Twitter. So, a little bit more from this New York Times piece. So here you had the Trump influencers posting a total rumor that DeSantis had once eaten chocolate pudding with his fingers. I mean, who among us has not done that? And the campaign dismissed it as liberal gossip, but at rallies, Trump supporters would chant, pudding fingers! And Trump later, his super PAC rather, ran an ad using images of a hand scooping up chocolate pudding. It's dumb. It may well not be true. But that doesn't stop the Trump campaign. And, uh, you know, let's just say DeSantis didn't get the better edge of, of, of that situation. Another... Uh, of the DeSantis videos cast Trump as too supportive of LGBTQ rights with mashed up images of transgender people. Pictures of DeSantis with pink lightning bolts shooting out of his eyes and clips from the film American Psycho. I'm sorry, how how is this going to help Ron DeSantis? Later deleted. But look, for all of the focus here in this piece about losing the online wars, and I think the Times makes a pretty good case, I don't think that's the central reason that DeSantis is not where he was four months ago in the polls. I think, like Tim Scott, he mostly dealt with conservative media. I interviewed him twice, and I appreciate that, and we had good conversations. 
But it seems to me that it was only more recently, as he was falling further behind, that Ron DeSantis went on Bill Maher's show and Morning Joe, um, CNN, again, which he might have started doing earlier. But also he would just, you know, get involved in, and he was running on his Florida record. He would get sidetracked by things like the controversy over slavery. Of course, Ron DeSantis is not pro-slavery. But there was a line in that uh, curriculum for public schools in Florida that talked about, you know, the slaves were lucky because they were getting um, all this training at the jobs they had as if they had a choice to leave. Even Tim Scott criticized that. But that's one he could have really gone to town on. So, I think DeSantis has a lot of strengths. But I think the erratic nature of the campaign, also spending too much money early on, and then having to drastically cut back, send a third of his staff to Iowa, where he's basically uh, betting his chips, I think those are much bigger factors than whatever goes on online. Problem with political reporters is they're online all the time and it comes to resemble the real world. But the New York Times story does make some decent points. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story number four. Let's go back to Politico. In this case, it's about Mike Pence, who I've also interviewed on Media Buzz. So Pence was in his home state of Indiana. And he was went to the press box and they had arranged for him to provide color commentary for a game on local AM radio. Earlier, he had once hosted a Saturday morning call-in show on an Indianapolis station before jumping to FM and having a syndicated The Mike Pence Show. They told me I could go up to the booth and do play-by-play, I heard him tell a voter. Not good. It's been a long time. Uh, It was the Trojan Bowl, by the way. Was that a savvy play to win over Iowans or the desperate act of a campaign running out of options? Desperate for sure, said veteran GOP strategist David Kochel once worked for Jeb Bush and Mitt Romney. To watch Pence on the trail these days is to see a man navigating the awkward, abrupt transition from being next in line of presidential succession just four years ago to backbencher status among the Republican field. You can see him grapple with his own political mortality, working it out in public. Now, A woman on the trail asked the former VP whether he felt called by God to run for president. Pence said, we didn't run because we felt like we saw some clear eight-lane superhighway straight to the Oval Office. Since disclosing that he has just $1.2 million left in cash, plus $620,000 in debt, Pence's campaign has not said whether he qualifies 
or will qualify for the third debate in Miami early next month. Okay, then it talks about him on the trail. 30 folks, uh, excuse me, 30 folks showed up at a Penn drugstore on a recent Friday morning. Another 30 at the Olive Branch restaurant in another town. 60 at a senior center in Glenwood the next day. In Iowa, averaging 2.6% among GOP voters. It's difficult, and this is true, to find political prognosticators who are not already on his payroll to give Pence any plausible shot at winning the nomination. The media has already decided how all this is going to end. He told just 13 people at a pizza ranch, and that became the headline. Trump can, uh, excuse me, Pence can only draw 13 people to pizza ranch. But as you know, I think Iowa has a unique opportunity to give our party, give our country a fresh start. So Pence is still hoping, and he gave, or had to give, maybe a better way to put it, $150,000 of his own money to his campaign in the weeks before that rather dismal fundraising report. Now, I may doubt that Mike Pence is qualified to be president after four years of vice president, and he's been a congressman, and he's been a governor. But from the start, he had this problem of having alienated both sides. And I asked him about that. On the one hand, the people who are pro-Trump voters, but who might he might have thought he could pull some of them away, have never forgiven him for saying he did not have the constitutional power, which was true, to block the Electoral College results on January 6th. On the other hand, more moderate voters who maybe agree with or at least understand what Pence did on that tragic day of the Capitol riot view him as having spent four years being a lackey, kind of a lapdog for President Trump. So I don't. I think with that dilemma, Pence doesn't have a natural constituency. So it was always an uphill climb. And I think maybe he thought he'd get out there. Perhaps lightning would strike. And he'd find a path to the nomination. But even if he didn't, he would explain to the voters what it's like to listen to Mike Pence as his own man. It's almost like he had a need, has a need, to distance himself from Trump. He knows his reputation after four years uh, as the VP. And that's what I think he has tried to do. So now you have all these pieces basically saying, well, this one can't win. Well, this one's toast. Well, this one's gone nowhere. Which is the combined effect of which is saying, Donald Trump's got this thing wrapped up. Okay, number five. House Republicans meeting. How how often have you heard this? Meeting behind closed doors today to try again to pick a speaker. After what, 17 days? Uh, Tom Emmer is considered the front runner, says the Washington Post, uh, congressman from uh, Minnesota, 
But Byron Donalds of Florida has surprised many lawmakers by gaining traction across several ideological factions. Serving in his second term, he's 44. Some fear he's too green to be speaker. But that's what you need, somebody who hasn't been there long enough to anger half of his colleagues. Advocates say he's built relationships across the conference. Um, Many are eager to see a black candidate as their speaker that would change the image, perhaps, of the GOP. Uh, Meanwhile, don't take my word for it about what a fiasco this is. Kevin McCarthy, you remember him, the former speaker who was ousted? He was on Meet the Press on Sunday. He said, this is embarrassing for the Republican Party. It's embarrassing for the nation. And we need to look at one another and solve this problem. Foreign Affairs Chairman Mike McCall on ABC's This Week. The world's on fire. This is so dangerous, what we're doing. Indeed. Uh, Now, how much of a factor is Donald Trump? Because, as I mentioned uh, a day or so ago, because he did not vote against the Electoral College certification of Joe Biden, and for other reasons, Trump has not been a fan, and his allies have been you know, going, spreading the word that Tom Member should not be the next Speaker of the House. Um, he was, Trump was asked a question yesterday, Will you endorse Tom Emmer for speaker? He hasn't historically been your biggest fan, but he is the most likely candidate right now. Trump said, he's my biggest fan now because he called me yesterday and told me I'm your biggest fan. Clearly enjoying the spectacle. But then he said, I'm trying to stay out of that as much as possible. Uh, I get along with all of them. Remember, Trump tried to win the speaker's race for Jim Jordan, and that didn't work. Remember also, any of these eight candidates can only uh, lose three Republican colleagues or they don't get to the magic number of 217. What they should do today is, you know, the way it goes is they vote and the candidate with the fewest votes is then eliminated. And then they vote again, eliminated. And eventually you end up with the top guy. They should all agree in advance that whoever the top vote getter is, even if it's, you know, with 125 votes, everybody should then support that person after a fair process. And voila, we have a speaker. But that's not, as far as I know, how they plan to proceed. Uh, speaking of Trump, uh, you know, with Sidney Powell, who, you know, has now pleaded guilty in the Georgia election interference case to various kinds of fraud in exchange for no jail and testifying at the trial, which means testifying against Trump. Um, Trump, you know, said she was never my attorney, despite the fact that she was announced as such. So uh, as he was campaigning in New Hampshire, filing actually for the primary, a reporter asked, you said Sidney Powell wasn't your attorney. Are you concerned that you won't be covered by attorney-client privilege? No, not at all. We did nothing wrong, Trump said. This, we did nothing wrong. This is all Biden. Indictments and impeachments, this is all about Biden. He can't do anything right. The only thing he knows how to do, they know how to do, is cheat in elections and election fraud. All these indictments that you see, I was never indicted, practically never heard the word. It's a word that wasn't, it wasn't a word that registered. Now, some people are jumping on that. Trump denies indictments. No, he, he's saying that in the past, when he was a New York businessman, 
he didn't think about indictments. He couldn't imagine in a million years he would be indicted. He's not denying that particular uh, reality. Now, finally, um, Trump is ticked off at Fox and Friends. This is not the first shot he's taken at the show, where he used to appear uh, like once a week as a guest when he wasn't in politics. Uh, Steve Ducey saying, I remember growing up, I remember Ronald Reagan was talking about the evil empire. I remember George Bush talked about the axis of evil. Of course, he was referring to Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. Well, there's a new axis of evil. And they played a clip of Mitch McConnell talking to Fox's Shannon Bream. Uh, how about, he was talking about his strong support for both Israel and Ukraine. So, here's the Trump Post. Fox and Friends this morning stated that under Ronald Reagan and George Bush, parentheses, which one? Well, George W. Bush. There was a tough policy against terrorists. They're wrong on Bush, but they left out one person, Trump, who took out ISIS, al-Baghdadi, Soleimani, and everyone else who's in the way of justice and peace. He's obviously uh, ISIS figures. Next time, maybe they could ask their bosses like Rhino Paul Rhino, that's a reference to Paul Ryan, the former House Speaker, who's now on the board of Fox Corporation and nothing to do with the editorial content, but for permission to use my name. The good news, based on the polls, the people understand. So now Trump is ticked just because he wasn't mentioned in this particular segment. Uh, one thing I'll say that echoes uh, his four years as president, the man watches a lot of TV. Uh, and with that, uh, thanks for being along for the ride today. Really appreciate it. Appreciate your time. One of our most valuable assets, right? And we'll give you even more of this tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.